This is the Italian American podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping Italian Americans learn about their heritage. We talk to experts, authors, and everyday Italian Americans on all things Italian from traditions, culture, food, genealogy, travel, and more. In today's episode, you're going to hear the second part of a candid conversation that we had with several Italian American community leaders about what is known as the Neo Bourbon movement, which will most likely paint a very different picture of Southern Italy than the one that you may have heard about from your elder relatives in Dolores. We've had some dynamite feedback on the first part of this series, haven't we? Yes, for sure. You know, I think that most of our listeners felt the way we did when we started learning about some of this history that's not really talked about. And in fact, an entirely different narrative has been the one that we've all been taught about why we're Americans and not Southern Italians anymore and this rich history that we have. We're so glad people are listening. We're so glad it's resonating with you. If you haven't listened to part one first, we really encourage you to do that before you listen to part two, or you might find yourself a little bit lost. Yeah, absolutely. Go to italianamericanexperience.com. Click listen. It's episode 45, the first part, um, and you can dig into it. It's really interesting if you're Italian-American geeks like we are. Um, <laughs> and you probably are because yeah, listening you're listening to the show. To the show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and one thing I um, just want to remind people is that this is part two of a series. So there's at least two more episodes coming. Yeah, absolutely. It was a long day. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but but it was fun. We it all liked fun. each other because it was fun. Yeah, exactly. And then afterwards we wrapped up and what we do, we went to eat some Italian food and have some drinks. It was great. That's it. It was, it was, <laughs> it was great. And uh, a couple of things I want to mention real quick is we want to just let everyone know that Believe it or not, I'll be here before you know it. The National Italian American Foundation Gala in D.C. in November. Dolores and I will be there, and we hope to see you there for sure. You could check out the, the information on nef.org, and we'll link to that in the show notes for the show. And also, I just want to mention that we're building a, a really powerful, I would say, and just really interesting community of people from our podcast listeners. You can check it out at italianneighborhood.com. It's called The New Neighborhood, A Place for Italian Americans. And, you know, Dolores and I are always talking about the fact that we don't have as many physical neighborhoods anymore around the United States, although there's still some, don't get me wrong, but it's not like it used to be. We've been able to connect with so many really interesting Italian Americans and passionate Italian Americans through our show. We wanted to find a way to bring them together. So we have this private Facebook group and we share stories, we share recipes. And I think I would say, Dolores, that we're really making some some great friends. Absolutely. 100%. And just the other day, one of the members posted about the gala and said that he just bought his tickets and he was going to be there. And, you know, he knew that you and I would be there. He was hoping other people from the neighborhood would be there. And we haven't actually met him in person yet. And I'm really looking forward to meeting him and spending some time with him at the gala. Yeah. Yeah. It's exciting. And, and we're, we're having a lot of fun. So again, that's italianneighborhood.com. You could see a video of Dolores and I talking about the new neighborhood and some, some options for you joining on board. And of course, by doing so, you'll help support the podcast and our content, which we are always appreciative of. So in this episode... It's the second part of our conversation. We talk with National Italian American Foundation President John Viola, as well as Anthony and Patrick O'Boyle, all three of whom are members of the Sacred Military Constantinian Order of St. George. I can't say that enough times. I love saying that. <laughs> You know, it's, it's interesting. And, you know, we dive into that in part one and you could do some more research on it. It's probably like a whole nother episode, honestly. Well, initially then, we wanted to talk about the Constantinian order. That was part of what we got together to talk about. And then this conversation 
just kept going and going and going that we never got to it. So it's definitely another series. I think, you know, we have to get back together and have them talk about the order and its connection to Southern Italy and why they do it and all that. So stay tuned for that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then in the story segment of this episode, I share a really interesting story about my own family research, kind of a new turn it has taken which is what makes family research so interesting because it can take twists and turns and you find new people and new things. So now we'd like to offer a brief word from our sponsor, the National Italian American Foundation, and then Dolores will bring us right into the episode with a quote. I'm John Viola, president of the National Italian American Foundation, proud supporters of the Italian American podcast. At NIAF, we know there's nothing more important than family, and we invite you to be a part of ours. We work hard to protect our great heritage to promote the Italian language, to build stronger ties between Italy and the United States, and to serve as your voice in our nation's capital. Most importantly, with over a million dollars a year in scholarships and grants, we provide young Italian-Americans help in earning a solid education and becoming future leaders for our community. To find out more about how your support serves the community, visit us online at www.niaf.org and become a part of the NIAF family. This is Gabriella Maletti, Director of Programs at the National Italian American Foundation, and here is your NIAF in the news. The National Italian American Foundation is excited to announce that it is now accepting applications for the Fulbright Fondazione Falcone NIAF Scholarship in Criminology for the 2018-2019 school year. This scholarship program, offered in collaboration with the Fondazione Giovanni e Francesca Falcone and the U.S.-Italy Fulbright Commission, offers one American student and one Italian student the opportunity to study law and criminology in each other's countries. To apply, visit www.fulbright.it. And lastly, Amonini in Sicilia. Come celebrate NIAF's 2017 Region of Honor Sicily at NIAF's 42nd Anniversary Gala this November in Washington, D.C. Tickets are now available to purchase on NIAF's website. This incredible event sells out every year, so buy your tickets early. And for more information on all NIAF in the news, visit www.neaf.org. Ciao. All right, now I'm going to kick it over to Dolores, and she's going to bring us into this episode with a quote. Okay, this quote is from Luciano Di Crescenzo. I have a concept of Naples that is not so much of a city, per se, but rather an ingredient of the human spirit that I detect in everyone, Neapolitan or not. The idea that Neapolitanism and mass ignorance are somehow indissolubly linked is one that I am prepared to fight with all the strength that I have. This episode is part two in a series on Southern Italian history and its impact on our identity as Italian-Americans. Now, if you haven't listened to part one, Stop this, go back, and listen to part one first. Or you may find yourself a little bit lost. It's definitely a foundational piece. So we ended part one with our guests, John Viola, president of the National Italian American Foundation, Pat O'Boyle and Anthony O'Boyle, all knights in the sacred military Constantinian order of St. George, considered one of the most ancient orders of knighthood, touching on the shame that Southern Italians and Italian Americans 
consciously or unconsciously have taken on in many instances when it comes to their dialects and their culture. We talked about how this is evidenced by the fact that many younger Southern Italians are no longer teaching their children regional dialects, wanting them to speak proper Italian only. We talked about how this pattern of being ashamed of Southern dialects is a result of our historical past and its impact on our psychology. This episode is going to pick up where that thread left off, and it picks up on a hopeful note that perhaps as we and Southern Italians learn more about our history, a resurgence is brewing, a movement to reclaim pride in our language, our creations, our values, and our way of life. Now, just as I did in part one, I'm going to pop in and out throughout the episode to give some background on what's being discussed or to deconstruct it. There's a lot going on and a lot to take in. We hope you really enjoy part two. Here we go. I see a change. I think things are getting better. You do? Because I think that, I'll tell you one thing. I think a, a huge reason why the dialects were being crucified was that there was no power in the, the people. Rye was controlled from Rome. Rye created a new language that everyone was going to speak. The aristocracy in Naples, they all jumped on board, you know, with the Savoy. I mean, I hate to say it, but a lot of people. So, and even though that was the language, Italian pride was the language of the aristocracy. Now, with Facebook, I have seen a tremendous change. Because I see Neapolitan videos written on Facebook. People are writing how they speak. So you'll have the beginning of the sentence in Italian, and then they'll put a phrase in Neapolitan. And about, I would say, 10 years ago, it was almost unseen. How interesting. We have different experiences on that same... But I think that... That's interesting. I think that I agree with you, Dolores, 100%. There was still the mother telling the child, and, and don't speak dialect. But the shame is deteriorating. Well, what, what, what I think is happening is what's never been able to happen for the Southern languages, which is the psychology is still don't speak. Right? Because we, when we were in, we were in Puglia, we were Bari, and we were this conversation with a young teacher. She, she was saying, we don't speak that anymore, blah, 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 blah. So I think psychologically, there's a long way to go. But what the internet has given people is, first of all, communication, mm -hmm. right? The, the, the fact that you can build a critical mass and yeah. with one another and, and work together. But it's also because the internet is written. It's yeah. forcing conversations about written standardization of these languages. So we now have the venue to bring speakers and advocates together, and they're forced on this venue to talk about standardization. Well, the best thing that could ever happen to a language, frankly, I mean, bad for the regions, but standardization of, of, of a regional language gives it a lot more uh, ease in terms of transmitting it to people that are not going to be doing it by parents teaching as a first language. If you're going to need textbooks to teach this stuff, right. you, you got to have a standard version to put in a textbook. And I think that that's a big advantage. Yeah, and I think also they think that if you had spoken to someone 20 years about what's, what's, what's happening in South Carolina, the one who's Neil Borbon, Southern Regional Identity, the re-examination of Southern Regional Identity, where there's a pride growing and almost, unfortunately, a resentment that they feel that they were treated as if they were second-class people from a second-class culture in their own country. I think that there's a young... Education has changed things because I think that 
the fear was that people with Zapatola, the Mario mm-hmm, Mario, mm-hmm. that, that classic. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's gone the other way because you have now a very well-educated uh, Southern Italy. And I think that these kids who are going to universities and degrees are, have the intellectual tools and self-confidence and self-assuredness to look back. Um, if you see what's on Facebook, the guy who does that North versus South, that sort of soldiers, something like that, whatever it's called, there's there's a there's a pushback now right. because you have a group of twenty-year-olds and thirty-year-olds, early thirty-year-olds in South of Italy. Who were from a, who were born in an economically depressed region, who are now in an economically devastated region, who resent the fact they have to move abroad, who have a lot of regional pride, who are not moving to other parts of the world, other parts of Italy, trying to camouflage their identity, who are very fiercely proud of their identity, and who want their culture and their background to be seen as equals. And they feel, I feel confident to say that because they have the same university degree as the kids from the north of Italy. So I think that now, I think that if you spoke about the Pino da Briole books and all that stuff 20 years ago, it was laughable. Yeah. And you couldn't find a book, it was almost a joke. Mm -hmm. And now, I've seen a tremendous change where people are starting to re-examine. And I think that we're probably, and I hope it's not too late for the the regional languages, I think we're probably 20 years, 10 to 20 years out from where there's a resurgence in, in this, and I think it just has to come around because I think that maybe the college-educated 20-year-old, 28-year-old, whatever, who when she does have a child and she's the mother, is not going to be the mother telling the kid on Skype speak well because, her, and I'm going to say this is where the real name was going to be because the most important life for the kid who was born, who, anyone living in Italy now, or for the child who's, who's your cousin, the most important life for them to speak is Italian. To, to advance in their career. Exactly. If you exactly. study why regional languages die in countries, is because it's seen as an economic disadvantage to children. Right. So wherever you go in the globe where there's a dying language, it's right. always correlated to a mother saying, don't speak that way because if you have, she's thinking, if you have that accent. It's like what happened to us here in America. Right. Like, don't speak Italian because we yeah. want you to advance this, in this culture. Exactly. Which you speak American. This is going to be the big, this is going to be what's going to really change the game, in my opinion, in Italy. Right now, it's Italian. You want your kids to speak right Italian, non-accented right Italian. But what's coming down the line is English is the lingua franca of the world. And it's going to be much more important for a kid to speak good English in Italy mm-hmm. than it's going to be able to speak good Italian. Mm-hmm. And that seems crazy now, but if you tell anyone doing business in England, in, in Europe, English is the lingua franca, and it's being used so much that you, you can have a... A you know a conversation where you have let's say a Spaniard and two Italians in the room and they're using English and the Italians turn to each other start using English because they use it so much. Right. You know we don't even see that coming. Yeah. So we have to rely on the. Sure. If you're in a if you're in a region, they'll say forget about learning the traditional Italian. Yeah. Learn English. Learn English. You can't maintain your language. Your English is going to have a dominant place. So I'm trying to say is that you're going to have kids now that are being born in Calabria and born in Sicily where the mother's going to say, well, you know, I want you to get a good job when you're young because you might be working in Munich or you might be working in Paris and English. So I think that the idea that Italian is, I know we're going to talk about Italian as the, as the, as the, what you had to uh, strive to. Right. I think that has more, that's going to have a lot to worry about too because Italy's in an extremely global society now. You might be an Italian manufacturer, let's say you make shoes, Okay. 
you, all your business all day might be with Anglophonic countries, or you might, you might be selling to China, because the person who made a lot of money in China selling kids' toys to Walmart wants to walk around with Italian custom shoes. He's not calling you and speaking Mandarin or Cantonese. He's right. calling you and speaking English. Right. And he maybe wants to import your shoes or own your shoes, and you just did that business transaction in English. So when your kids run around speaking and not on, you don't care that much. You're more concerned that your kid pays attention in school to their English language. Their right. English language. So I think we're down, but we're not out. That's interesting. <laughs> that's that, that's interesting that? because actually, if you think about it, like it, in a sense, it's kind of saying that globalization and in a sense, the English language can save some of these dialects because they're, it's becoming more important yeah. than their own. Well, I mean, like, you know, just to betray my own, my my own first name and last name, my father was born and raised in Ireland. And one, being half Irish, really Irish, being half Irish, Ireland is a nation state. There's no question. Are there regional differences? Absolutely. Is there regional pride? Absolutely. But overall, Overall, Ireland is a is a nation, is a is a, is a, is a unified nation state in a cultural sense. Ireland is so much more a culturally unified country than even the south of Italy is. Right. I mean, so many things in history could have gone differently, where Sicily would have evolved as a totally independent country. Hmm. Sicily would have had its own independent language because we know how different Sicilian is mm-hmm. from a poor right Italian. And it would have been just accepted today, the same way that Portugal reasserted its independence on the Iberian Peninsula from Spain, that Sicily was an independent country. And I argue this Ireland is probably more culturally homogenous than Sicily. And Sicily is at most a region of Italy. I think a huge factor of this is going to be that. What's going to also change the game is... One handicap that we've always had is that Italians only speak Italian. And that's not the case anymore, but probably from the baby boomers on. So all their news came from either Rye or the, or the national newspapers. And so Italy controlled Italy's conversation. You now have, um, I, I have friends in the Broadway, I was at their house for dinner. They're in New York constantly. And they had, um, was it QXR, WQXR in New York, the, the classical music station? Okay. You know, they're in New York enough that they like WQXR, and they were live streaming as we were having dinner in their house in the Broadway with local uh, Buffalo, we got the, and the whole, I mean, we were in a Broadway listening to QXR from New York, classical music. Right. And the reason I bring that up is that they're NPR listeners. Right. They don't have to depend on Rye for the story. And I think that now that Southern Italians are becoming proficient in English, are getting new sources from outside of Italy. Well, the internet, I mean, like everywhere else. Yeah, sure, and you know, the Italian, yeah. the Italian, the people on top who were not only were calling the shots, but were, were telling the narrative, are losing that power because someone in a globally can turn on NPR, exactly. get NPR news on QXR, and get a non-Italian controls, you know, the people on top, the story that we want spun. And I think this is going to be, this is, this is going to have a lot, a lot of, it's going to have a lot of impact on Southern Italian identity. I think another problem, not, I don't want to say problem, but another, another issue that's going to come up is that Italy is a very, uh, homo- it's, it's very heterogeneous and homogenous at the same time that, you know, two towns are separate from each other. 
and one town makes the recipe one way, one makes it the other way, and as far as those two towns are concerned, it's a completely different recipe. Right. And, you know, we use one word in this dialect, or they have a, you know, they put an extra sound, and the towns are walking distance, and they really feel like an independent identity. They didn't really manage that, because everything's been in these t- towns and villages, and geography to it. But it, even like I said, the Albanians, or the Provençal, or the Greeks, were in, they had their own villages. What's going to happen now in South Italy with a country with an extremely low birth rate, mm-hmm. where people with families are moving out either to other parts of Europe or to around the world for economic opportunities? What's happening is they're going to become a multicultural country, whether they like it or not. Eastern Europeans, uh, Middle Eastern people, North Africa, it, it's a, just the way I just feel that just the way it's going to wind up is that they're going to have for the first time, probably since Roman times, maybe even ever, it's a a hard historical concept to process, they're going to have real people who are foreign around them. Not just a town that's two two kilometers away that uses two teaspoons of black pepper instead of one. (laughs) And I think what's going to happen is that the region, they're going to feel more of, um, and and maybe from a positive standpoint or a negative standpoint internally, but there will be more of a drive to preserve our own culture. Because now they're going to be in a multicultural place where they see that if they don't, there's going to be other cultures. And they're going to have, they're going to feel, and I think that um, mm. there'll be more of a feeling of we need to, you know, people take things for granted. But I think once they say, gee, you know, we're disappearing. We're not making babies. We're going away. We're kind of just, we're dissipating. I think there's going to be a further push to recognize regional identity, regional languages that pride them. Pat just now was obviously diving into what he thinks the future of Southern Italy will be as opposed to its past. Interestingly, his feeling is that globalization and multiculturalism will change Italian identity, yet the threat of that change will also inspire an entire generation to preserve its regional identity in the face of that possible loss. And listening back to the audio, I couldn't help but think of us Italian-Americans. I mean, isn't that in many ways what we've done here? What especially this current generation is doing when the threat of losing our identity, language, history, and culture becomes greatest with assimilation with the passing of the original immigrants. There's a surge to preserve and reconnect with all of it so that it's not indeed lost. How many times have we talked on the show about the fact that our ancestors took Italian enclaves for granted, not realizing that one day it would get harder to preserve our traditions and way of life? I mean, that's what Pat is referring to when he says he can see a future where the influx of other cultures into tight-knit southern Italian towns will effectively create a countersurge to preserve the identity of those towns and the people in them. Now we're going to get into some indications that the movement to preserve southern Italian culture is indeed afoot. Pat's going to mention the Bourbons, which, as we explained in part one, were the last monarchy to reign over the kingdom of the two Sicilies. I just think if you go to South Italy now, I was in Sorrento maybe. When I when I had everybody has a shop moment. I don't know what it was for John. I was in Sorrento and I went into a men's store 
and it was a men's jacket. This is about, uh, I'd say just about 10 years ago, maybe eight. And on the label was the stem up, was the coat of arms of the forebears. And underneath was written in Neapolitan, Fatanapo. Mm, I like that. And I was like, whoa. This was a high end. His jacket cost more than my airline trip, my airline okay. flight. But this was a guy who had absolutely zippo embarrassment of speaking Neapolitan, of being from Naples. And he said, well, I'm from Naples, but I sell here in this store. Now, now Via Sanchez Adio, if you've been to Sorrento, it's a historic shopping district. On the same trip, I'm walking down Via Sanchez Adio, and I went to a souvenir store just to fill time. And I see behind the counter a Bourbon flag, a modern little nylon printed Bourbon flag. And I said, and I, I struck the conversation with him, I'm like, wow. And he's, it was the Pino Daniele, Pino, post Pino Daniele, Taroni, Southern Italian. No, Pino Aprila. Pino Aprila, I'm sorry, Pino Daniele. Pino Daniele, Pino Daniele, Pino Daniele, Pino Daniele, Pino Daniele, there was such a synergy between the gentleman that I saw who had the jacket something that 100% made in Naples Fatanawa. Now, he could have put the N with the blue, which is kind of a knockoff of the sports team. He could have used that as the emblem, the red and the yellow, which for a while, I guess, is a symbol of the city of Naples. There are so many different emblems he could have used to denote made in Naples. Hmm. But he used the board bone flag. And he, um, he knew his history. And see history. how that enriches Absolutely. you. The South, I think the Italian central government makes a huge mistake because I think they don't understand irredentionist movements. The more you suppress them and you ignore them, it's like big gallon trucks and kerosene putting it on fire. If the Italian government said just kind of like what's going on in Louisiana, and, and the South was a complicated, the South and the Civil War is a very, it's very complicated. But if, if, but it's being addressed. This issue is being addressed. People say, you know, of course, if you're an African American, the statue of Robert E. Lee is going to be uh, a symbol of oppression. If, if you come from a, from ancestors who were slaves, if you're a, a Southern American, an American from the South, who had ancestors who fought in, in for the Confederacy. I mean, I listened to you on YouTube. It was a recording of a Southern. This is General Colonel, and he's like, you know. We fought for states' rights. I, I, I didn't consider myself fighting for slavery. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know what was in that man's soul, but you have people in the South who have regional pride in people like we that it was a states' right movement. So you have, a, you, have a, a, you have conflicting views, but the conversation is there. In the 1950s, no one was saying that Robert E. Lee was a, to the, to the African-American populations of these cities was an emblem of oppression. But I think that if the Italian central government doesn't start to discuss how the Corso Garibaldi and the Via Cialdini's that are around the south of Italy have a, what's the word I'm looking for, John? It is almost inflammatory in some yeah. places. If they don't have that discussion, they will lose control of the discussion because the discussion will come. And slowly in the south of Italy, many of these names are being removed. If the Italian state, really, who celebrated the 150th anniversary of Italian unification, taking no rec no acknowledgement of the destruction that was forced on the south of Italy, it wasn't a unification, it was an invasion. They refused to tell the entire story, the complete story, by spinning it from the same way they spent it for 150 years. They are, they are refusing to engage in the argument, and they're going to have people that they don't like, and they don't like the message that's coming, leading the discussion. Mm. And that's what's happening now. 
So until they begin to recognize that the South has real historical grievances, and they have an open discussion saying maybe we should change the name of Via Chalvini, well, they dismissed this. You know, Rye came out with a series of commercials, I don't know if anyone, for the 150th anniversary of Italy, and they had people speaking in dialects and saying, oh, if, if we hadn't unified anybody, we wouldn't have understood each other. Man, that was the most asinine, I mean, how do you, who? It was, it, was, it was beyond insulting. It was absolutely beyond insulting. But it was more indignant that they don't get it. That they don't get it. I mean, get that. I want to give you guys a story to tell. And I know it's going to be hard to craft this into a story because it's so much passion. I want to read some statistics so that you can put them however you feel they're useful. But I do want to point out, too, you talk about identity and, like, picking the bourbon symbol. I find it really fascinating that, you know, in the Veneto, which is easy to compare because it has such a strong regional identity and it unified later and into Italy and blah, blah, blah. In the Veneto, the flag of the Venetian Empire is still the state flag, and it's a matter of great pride to fly it, and it's, you know, everywhere you go, it's part of the system, it's it's a seen as an ethnic symbol, it's seen as a historical symbol, and it's actually a functioning symbol in the modern region. And in Rome, uh, when you go to a soccer match, there's the, the Roman she-wolf, and you know, these symbols that have been part of the history of what were pre-unitary states are still, today in Italy, the symbols of, of pride and for different use. There was a great article uh, not that long ago because a, a soccer match in Naples, which is at the forefront of this neo-bourbon movement, you know, it is all over the South, but Naples and Campania is really experiencing the highest peak of it right now. The police rounded up bourbon flags at a soccer match at the stadium because they said they were symbols that incited violence and they were... Um, this was recently? Yeah, last year. And I found it really fascinating. I thought to myself, could you imagine if you went to a soccer match in Venice? And somebody tried to tell you, give me back that banner of St. Mark, because this is a, a hate symbol. I mean, mm-hmm. that's how different it is. And that, to me, is the big problem. And Pat makes a great point. It's like, yeah, we're not talking about the land of sunshine and mana, but at the same time, that was the world of the day. I want, I want to read these stats, and you can use them however you want, but I find it really fascinating, because before unification, the South was the largest kingdom in the country, the largest land mass. had a population of 9 million and it had a home industry through import and export controls. You had, this is really important, the, the merchant fleet was the third largest in Europe, 9,800 vessels, 40 shipbuilding yards. Naples was the center of a metal and textile industry, and prices were kept stable, and the bank was issued on 100% gold backing. So when unification came to pass, Naples, the kingdom of the two Sicilies, had the fourth largest gold reserves in the world which disappeared within six months and went to pay off Northern debt. The, uh, the kingdom produced an agricultural surplus during the final 40 years of its existence, 1820 to 1860. So, I mean, when 60 years later, when Mussolini has to take on a battle for wheat because Italy can't feed itself anymore, Naples had a surplus for 40 years uh, up until 1860. The region of Calabria, prior to unification, was the richest in the peninsula. Uh, subsequent to unification, it was the poorest. The steelworks covered an area of 12,000 square meters. Armaments factories covered 4,000 square meters. Calabria led in iron and cast iron production, silk production, and shipbuilding. Puglia and Basilicata were centers of cotton, wool, and flax produce that was exported all over the world. Foggia and Bari were renowned for agricultural machinery. 
chemical industry, fishing, and battle fleets. The salt mines in Barletta supplied much of Europe. Abruzzo and Molise were noted for the production of tools, metal blades, cattle, and goat farming, and there were many textile factories and paper mills. In Campania, steamships, locomotives, industrialized armaments, tools, chemical, pharmaceutical, paper, glass, leather, foodstuff, ceramic, and building materials were all manufactured and processed. You are talking about the island of Sicily built ships, exported sulfur, olive oil, citrus fruits, sea salt, and wine. And I just want to add these. The kingdom was the first in the world to launch a a steel ship to sea in 1818. Hmm. England didn't launch a steel ship until 1822. The first and second iron bridges in the world were built in 1832 and 1835 uh, in the kingdom of two Sicilies. The first railway line in the Italian peninsula was built outside of Naples. Before the 1860 invasion, the capital had been raised to construct a rail network throughout the kingdom. In 1840, the Royal Pietrasa Industrial Complex employed over a thousand workers. It was a blueprint for industrial works all over Europe. By 1840, Naples had 350 gas street lamps, was the third most illuminated capital in Europe behind London and Paris. I mean, I can go on and on and on. Hardly the picture of a backwards destitute. The lowest tax tax burden in in, in all of Italy. So, so, you know, taxes became a huge issue after unification because they taxed the South to death. The things John just said are really the nucleus of why we wanted to do this series. The narrative that unification was this glorious success that Garibaldi and the North saved destitute backward southern Italy is not a complete narrative. As Pat said, it wasn't unification. It was an invasion. John is explaining something that really blew my mind. Our ancestors left Southern Italy because what once had been a place that could be lived in became unlivable. But this was after 1860. It was not centuries of destitute struggle. At least not any more than struggle was a part of life anywhere in the world at the time. And for that matter, continues to be today. What this all amounts to is were it not for unification, we might all still be Italians. Or, put another way, unification is the real reason we are Americans. But, so yes, was it perfect? No. But people living with a government that was planning, that was building, that was industrious, and that was imposing the lowest tax burden in the peninsula, don't leave. And that's why they didn't leave. And then 20 years, 10 years later, they left in huge droves. And that's where we are. We're the byproduct of that. And so this neo-Burman movement, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. The, the people of the south of Italy have been branded as shiftless by certain people in the north and foreign people and people in North America as shiftless and unproductive. And not, you know, you have a, a, all these negative attributes. The explosion of success that they had coming to America is indicative mm. of what they were capable of as a people. And it showed, but that wasn't non-existent. They were, they were, they it's were producing in the south of Italy. They had horrible, they had, the, the world was turned upside down. They came to America 
And they did tremendous things in the United States. I mean, if you look at our success rate, the business success rate, and all, all the things in the early 1920s, you know, people who, who came here and the, and the successful things they did, and for those who couldn't do it themselves, for what their children achieved, you can call us a lot of names, but you cannot say that we were not producers. And when I get, when I've had people, I mean, I've done work in Italy, and with my last name and my first name, people say things to me that they wouldn't say to someone with a name like a Dolores Alfie. We kind of give it away. <laughs> I had people say to me, now I have one, I'm not saying there's people who came to North Italy in a bad sense, that's completely not the case. But there are, there's, there's racist elements there, as there are ever, everywhere in the world, as in the South. And I've had people say to me the most ridiculous, well-educated people my age, People in the late, there are, I'm in my early, for example, people said things to me when I was in Italy a lot in my 30s. And I would just say to them, well, you say all this stuff about the South of Italy. What is intrinsically wrong with us as a people that when we came to America, we were so prosperous? Right. So you take all these people from towns in Calabria and Basilicata and San Lazio. What is it that if, if we are such an intrinsically faulty and unproductive and I don't know the word I'm looking for. Like lazy, shitless, like you said before. Society, yeah. How come we've done so well here? And then they shut up. I said, because you forced the best and the brightest right. to leave the South. The people who have made the South into a juggernaut economically, a tourist capital of the Mediterranean, all these things that they could have done mm. because of your system and your country, their ambition, not their laziness, caused them to pack their bags and go to Germany and Switzerland and the United States and Canada and Australia. So it's, they didn't leave because they were lazy. They left because they were ambitious. And had you given them a country of opportunity, they could have made the South of Italy a powerhouse that could have left the North in the dust. I thought this was a great place to end part two. Our next episode will be a break from this series, but we'll pick it up again after that. So please stay tuned for part three, where we get into the future, cultural identity as choice, and much more. It's now time for the Italian-American story segment of the episode. This is the part of the show where we try to bring you back to your family gatherings, conversations, and we try to play a recording or a story from one of our listeners or our own relatives or even read something that a listener submitted. And as I mentioned earlier, you're about to hear a story from me about how I recently found relatives here in New Jersey that were introduced to me by my relatives that I recently found and connected with in Italy. Here it goes. So many of you know my story of me tracing my ancestors back to Italy just recently. Within the last three years, I did some research. I found about about our relatives in Italy. I found them, contacted them, learned Italian, planned a 40-day trip to Italy, and then went on the trip last summer. And my new book, which just came out, 40 Days in Italy con la Mia Familia, not only explains the trip, but it explains how I did each one of those things to help Italian-Americans 
do those things. Um, and I'm happy that the book has so far been well received and that people have been utilizing the information. But the story that I have to share with you today just goes to show you that even after all the work I did, I'm still finding some amazing things. And now something that came through my family in Italy that I want to share with you. So the family that I visited when I was in Italy last year um, on my father's side was in Salerno. They have a farm up in the hills and the mountains there. And the story behind it is that my great-grandfather has two brothers, Angelo and Pasquale, and they all came here, but Angelo didn't like it. And he went back. And so that's the family that's there. They have the farm, the same farm that my great-grandfather grew up on, and I visited them. Now, the other brother, Pasquale, had stayed here in the United States, and he had a family here in New York area. Now, while my aunts and uncles remember some of the cousins from Pasquale's line, and my grandmother remembers some some people, um, we don't really know them. We don't have any relationships with them. We don't keep in touch with them. So about a month or so ago, I got an email or a message from the cousin in Italy, Maria Rosa, who's my age, who I visited when I was there, who's Angelo's great-granddaughter, my great-grandfather's brother's great-granddaughter. And so she said to me, Anthony, I received this letter from somebody in New Jersey from the family, and I'm wondering if you know them. So I went on to read this letter, and it was basically two pages long of Pasquale's story of the whole story behind how he came here. His mom was here back and forth with dates and everything, and then explaining their family there. And essentially it was the person that was writing this was uh, Pasquale's granddaughter, which would be kind of an equivalent to my, my parents, their generation. And it ends up that they live just an hour South of me in New Jersey. And they were going to visit and they ended up going to visit just last month, um, the family in Italy. And what I thought was really interesting and amazing about this is that they only live an hour south of me in New Jersey, but the only way that I was able to connect with them and find out about them was because I found the family in Italy and we both happened to contact the family in Italy. And I thought that that was really interesting because it just goes to show you that you don't know how you're going to connect with your relatives. You don't know how you're going to find them. And which is why I'm so passionate about the steps that I lay out in my book for finding the relatives on your own. You can find your relatives on your own and the stones that that can turn over for you are unbelievable. Just can keep happening. Uh, you'll keep finding more people. And, and with the people that we're finding, I mean, this is 100% confirmation that they're related based on the stories and the years and everything that they're telling. And the letter that I'm referring to even had uh, pictures in it as well. So I got to see pictures of the family. And now, of course, I've reached out to the family in New Jersey here and I'll try to get together with them and learn even more. So learning about your heritage, whether you're Italian or not, whatever, whatever your culture is, is not that hard to do. It requires some effort. It requires some time and some research, but the tools are available and you can paint an amazing picture of your past. And I would urge you all to do that. We have a lot of information on italianamericanexperience.com. We have a category in the sidebar called family history research. Um, you can also check out my book, 40 Days in Italy, Con la Mia Familia. It's on amazon.com or you can go to italianamericanstory.com and see me <clears throat> talk about the book and do a little singing in Italian in a video. Um, but the bottom line is, is it's up to you. And I say this all the time. The information's there. It's up to you to put the work in and go and get access to that. I hope you're doing that. And I'd love to hear from you and hear how it's going. You can get contacted with me through the website, of course, or through our email list. And let's help you find out your Italian-American story. 
All right. So I hope that you enjoyed the second part of our very interesting conversation on Southern Italy, which is again, not over yet. We have at least one or two more episodes for you as we're going through it and just digging into what is really important to many of us, right? About Southern Italy. And I also hope you enjoyed my little story here just to reemphasize, you know, keep researching your family because you never know really what you're going to find out. So with that, let me kick it over to Dolores and she's going to take us out. All right. I just want to remind everyone that if you're not already connected with us via email, you can do so by visiting ItalianAmericanExperience.com and clicking on the Join Us tab. That's the best way to keep abreast of what we're up to, new episodes that are coming out, events, etc. Also, just a reminder, if you're interested in joining the new neighborhood, you can visit ItalianNeighborhood.com to learn more about that. And lastly, we're on social media where we have a good old time together. You can find us on Instagram at Italian American. We're on Twitter at Ital American. And we're on Facebook at Italian American Podcasts. Centanni! Centanni!